conflict. There's no good story. There's no good novel or film without conflict. There's no, there's no good sport without a contest. We've all been to football games when we aren't even through the first, <laughs> the first quarter. We know how it's going to end up, and there's just no contest. A contest between two forces. And with real life, when those two forces really aren't playing games, you've got conflict. And you're at odds with something. You're at odds with something. And, and sometimes we're at odds with the things of life. The bitter disappointments that are a part of living life in a broken world. At odds. And so when last we spoke, last week, we were at the beginning of Matthew chapter 17. Jesus, along with Peter and James and John, was near the area of Caesarea Philippi. And they had ascended a mountain, possibly Mount Hermon. And while they are there, Jesus is transfigured. He's, he's transformed and he's all glowing white. Uh, it really, this is a preview of his glorified being, and he's in the midst of Moses and Elijah, two mighty men of God, whose lives and, and ministries represent God's divine judgment and God's divine deliverance. And, and Peter, you know, Peter is all excited. He wants to stay and, and build each of the three a tabernacle. And and God the Father. God the Father speaks from heaven, if you remember, telling the disciples to listen to Jesus, to, to obey Jesus. And so they listen, and, and it's time for them to go. And Jesus and the disciples, they, they leave this place, and they begin the descent. As they go, they... They ask Jesus about Elijah and a, and a prophecy regarding his seeming return at the very end of the Old Testament. And in and, and Jesus' explanation, he connects this prophecy of Elijah to the murdered John the Baptist. And when he does this, Jesus gives those, those three men a glimpse of the fate which awaits him. And I would imagine that they continue the descent, probably in awkward silence. <laughs> Can't you imagine James and John thinking, Oh, Peter, Peter, please don't say another word. <laughs> please, just don't talk anymore. And this morning in verse 14, when they come to the crowd, a man comes up to Jesus, falling on his knees before Jesus and, say, and says, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill, and he, for he often falls into the fire and, and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. As is the case so often, we, we go from the mountaintop to the valley. We, we have this great, awesome, once-in-a-lifetime experience. And then we have to come back to real life, don't we? At odds. The father at odds with his, son, his son's condition. 
think about the viewpoint of the parents of the boy. Why does my kid have to deal with something that he didn't bring upon himself? Why does my kid have to deal with something that your kid doesn't have to? These are real life questions. And these are questions we'd ask. I mean, I would ask them. <laughs> Why? The father at odds with the disciples, well, for lack of a better word, their impotence. I brought him to your disciples, but this isn't simply customer dissatisfaction. This isn't customer service at Walmart on December the 26th. <laughs> you know. The father, the father was hoping, or maybe he was afraid to hope. Uh, the father has no doubt faced disappointment. And he's faced it again. A dead end again. This father at odds with his lot in life. This man obviously loves his son. <laughs> no question. He's, he's crying out for mercy for his son. However, this has been this man's life for, I would imagine, some significant period of time. This situation. It, it, a terrible situation. No one can help. And this situation with the boy, it has chartered the course of the family. Again, questions. Why? Questions from the boy's siblings. I mean, if there are siblings, we, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But, but if, they, if there are siblings, questions such as, why are other families staying away from us? Why, why are the other kids staying away from me? I'm not the one with the problem. The family certainly couldn't have anticipated something like this. You know those things down the road, so to speak, that we never think about. Those unexpected turns in the road. But today, the Father has come to Jesus. Lord, Master, have mercy. Have mercy on my son. The man is calling out Jesus for who Jesus is. And, and, and maybe, the man, maybe the man's been in one of the crowds. Maybe he's seen Jesus at work. Maybe he's heard the chatter. Maybe the man, here we go, maybe the man has been in group session with the Samaritan woman whose daughter happened to be healed a few chapters back. And we want to rejoice with those families. We really do. But sometimes, I mean, we just wish sometimes. This man hopes that Jesus can heal his son too. This lunacy, 
is driving the boy to either burn himself up or to drown himself. In verse 17, Jesus answers and he says, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. Is Jesus in a bad mood? <laughs> Jesus has just come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. <laughs> is, is, is it that same situation where maybe we get that phone call or that text or that email from work on the way back from vacation? <laughs> For me, it was years ago. It was the dread of what was awaiting me back at the office upon my return from being away at school during doctoral work in Louisville. What is going to face me when I get back? For some of you, it's that, it's that Sunday night sense of dread. Is Jesus in a bad mood? Is it just that? No. Jesus is at odds with the continual lack of belief. You unbelieving and perverted generation. Uh, unbelieving. Why does Jesus say this? Uh, unbelieving. Uh, incredulous. Unchristian. It, it means what it says. Perverted. Why does Jesus say this? Perverted. A, a biblical definition of the word perverted is turned through into a new shape which is distorted, which is twisted, it's opposite from the shape or the form that it should be. And, and in our generation, we have certain connotations when we hear words like unbelieving and we hear words like perverted. And at first hearing, I don't really associate those terms in the same family of any kind of like or synonym or sharing any kind of commonality so how are unbelieving and perverted associated? Well, if, if perverted means the opposite of the shape that it should be, twisted into that form, would unbelieving distort something into the form that it shouldn't be? Does unbelieving lead to perversion? It's a good question. Jesus rebukes the demon. And the demon comes out of the boy, and the boy is cured at once. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Jesus rebukes the demon. He restrains the demon from acting out any more violence toward the boy. And, and, and Jesus is obviously and appropriately at odds with this demonic presence. And we don't see the rest of the story for the man, the father, the, the boy, the rest of the family, if there is one. We can only imagine, we can only imagine the joy and the freedom in which they now walk. Thanks be to God. Yeshua, salvation. Verse 19, the disciples, they come to Jesus privately and they, and they say... Why, why could we not drive it out? It's a fair question. I mean, you've got to love the disciples and, and their discretion. 
they come to Jesus privately. You know, they're referring to their inadequacies, and, and you know, they don't want to discuss their ineffectiveness on the main stage of the public forum. I mean, these are the disciples. These are the ones riding in the posse with Jesus. And no one likes to have their faults analyzed in public. None of us like that, do we? So they come to Jesus privately. They're at odds with their lack of ability. And, and maybe they're at odds with how the public now perceives them. You know, they kind of fumbled. And Jesus says to the disciples, He says, Because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. The littleness of your faith. That statement occurs five times in the New Testament. And each time, Jesus is rebuking, He's correcting the problem of failing to hear his voice. You're not listening. And the word for little faith describes someone, I love this, someone dull to hearing. <laughs> someone dull to hearing the Lord's voice or disinterested in walking intimately with Him. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to the mountain, Move from here to there. Nothing will be impossible for you. Are we at odds? Are we at odds with understanding the intersection of our faith and the intersection of our mountains? Faith the size of a mustard seed. And a ton has been written about this. A ton has been written about it. Is this what is called hyperbole? A hyperbole, it's an exaggerated statement or a claim not meant to be taken literally. We were on the road this morning talking about hyperbole. And I asked Clark, because I heard him say this a few months ago, I said, define what a hyperbole is and give me an example. And Clark, without missing a beat, says... I've got a ton of homework. To which his mother says to me, to me, I've told you a million times. <laughs> you know? Maybe that one's not hyperbole. But, is this, is what Jesus says simply semi-poetic? Is it, is it language that just, it's used to make this provocative point. Well, and maybe Jesus, you know, he points to the mountain from which they've, they've just descended. Maybe he does that. I mean, we've seen a mustard seed before. And, and the mustard seed, smaller than the rest, can grow into such an entity, such a size, that birds can build a nest. That's, that's a miracle. That's a miracle of life. And, and in the same way, faith, regardless of how small, through seeking God, can be nurtured to seek those things which are seemingly impossible without God. Let me say that again. Faith, regardless of how small, through seeking God or the things of God, can be nurtured to seek those things 
which are seemingly impossible without God. If we dial back just a few months, around the holidays, at the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke, you remember when Mary is found to be with child by the Holy Spirit? Luke chapter 1, verse 37, reminds us, nothing is impossible with God. Amen. 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 Well, then Jesus just has to go here. Some of you don't have this verse in your translations. Verse 21 is not in a few of your translations. Um, and the verse says this, but this kind does not go out, talking about these demons, they do not go out except by prayer and fasting. And I'm hearing paper shuffling, and you're looking for it. You're looking for it, and that's good. But why do some of you have this verse in your Bibles and some, you, some of you, you don't? Well, it's a matter of, of, it's what they call textual criticism, it's manuscript sources, ancient scholars you know, copying or transcribing, kind of like archaeologists finding an older manuscript like Indiana Jones. It's that kind of stuff. But this idea of prayer and fasting... When we pray, we are to seek God's face. And I heard a preacher say one time, we need to seek God's face, not just His hands. Amen. I'm going to say that one more time. We need to seek God's face, not just His hands. And when we pray, we are to seek God's face. When we fast, biblically, biblically speaking, that is to abstain from food. We talked about that some Wednesday night. Wednesday was the beginning of the season of Lent. And this idea of, of, of what do you, would some of us fast from food or something else? Media, social media, technology, uh, things that maybe rob our focus from the things of God. But when we fast, we are to push past distractions. Our needs, our wants, our druthers to seek God's face. Prayer and fasting. I, I want to read a couple of comments from something called the Pulpit Bible Commentary. The Pulpit Bible Commentary is, check this out, 23 volumes, 22,000 pages, 95,000 entries, written over a 30-year period with 100 writers and scholars contributing. And this was over 100 years ago. So it was kind of like blogs or Wikipedia, but biblical. And one of my prized possessions is a full set of these commentaries that was used by my great-grandfather. Listen to this about prayer and fasting. Some demons are more malignant than others and have greater power over the souls of men in the present case, the possession was of long standing. It revolved a terrible bodily malady. It was of an intense and unusual character. The mere word of exorcism or the name of Jesus spoken with little spiritual faith could not overcome the mighty enemy. The exorcist, that's the one who casts out these demonic forces, needed special preparation. He must inspire and augment his faith by prayer and self-discipline. 
Prayer invokes the aid of God and puts oneself unreservedly in His hands. Isn't that beautiful writing? Amen. Fasting subdues the flesh, arouses the soul's energies, brings into exercise the higher parts of man's nature. Thus equipped, a man is open to receive power from on high and can quell the assaults of the evil one. Amen. I mean, nobody writes like that anymore, do they? No. But the one who is calling out the evil must be saturated with prayer. The one heading into an encounter with evil must have his or her guard up. Prayer invokes. Prayer pleads for and calls down the aid of God. Prayer is a form of spiritual self-discipline. Prayer is a, is a habit. Uh-oh. Just as is the self-discipline or the habit of spending time, uh-oh, looking at the words of God, uh-oh, Oh my, Jake, you went there. The beautiful thing about turning to the things of God is this. David says this in Psalm 103. Had this on my mind this week. I shared this Wednesday night. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and unbounding in loving kindness, covenant loyalty. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins. Thanks be to God. (laughs) Nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. And just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on on those who fear him. For he himself, God himself, knows our frame. Amen. He is mindful. He is mindful that we are simply but dust. We get out of sync. We get out of practice, but the Lord knows our frame. Thanks be to God. He is is mindful that we are dust. He knows that we are hopelessly human without Him. And as the prodigal child turned his heart and his life toward home, toward the Father, as the prodigal did that, we are welcomed to do the same. Anytime. Thanks be to God. There's a scene change in, in maybe 30 miles from where they were. And, and, and they're gathering together there in verse 22 in Galilee. And Jesus says to the disciples, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him. And he will be raised on the third day. And the disciples are deeply grieved. Jesus points... He points forward to what's coming. And and the disciples, they're upset. They're they're at odds with the future. Maybe they're at odds with their disbelief. Are some of them still 
holding out for the Messiah King that's going to come in like King Arthur? Not the suffering servant who will go to the cross to pay our sin debt. Maybe they're at odds with their unbelief. I mean, Jesus has just called them out for having little faith. Called them dullards. Maybe they're at odds with the reality of what Jesus says is waiting for him. Uh, they love Jesus. And, and they don't want anything to happen to him. But I, I tend to think more on the selfish side. I, and that says really probably a whole lot about me. <laughs> but I think about... You know, I don't give them enough credit, I guess. Perhaps really they're at odds with the possibility of what might be waiting for each one of them. You know? At odds. What are those things with which you might be at odds this morning? Does the father's situation, his frustrations as a helpless parent, can you perhaps relate? What about the boy? What about the boy and, and, and what possesses him? Do you have things, memories, guilt, maybe, that possess your thoughts? Does your past possess your present? Maybe you're looking at the disciples. Are you at odds with how you're handling your Christian walk and your witness? If we're honest, I think we all deal with that. I know I do. We all tend to be at odds with something. Maybe you're at odds with how you're trying to deal with living the day to day. Well, I want to remind you that the altar is open. And I'm here to listen and to pray with you and to encourage you and to remind you that we have a wonderful, wonderful Savior. Yeshua, salvation. <laughs> we have a wonderful Savior who went to the cross to pay for the sins of each one of us. Jesus saves. And that's good news. So, I invite you to come.